Let's take our Bibles together and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. You'll find that in page 1002 in your church Bible, Hebrews chapter 3. We'll read the first six verses. Let's hear the Word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, we, we all need heroes, although today I suppose all we're given instead are celebrities and superstars who imitate heroes. But every now and then we take stock and we look back in our past and we ask ourselves who the great heroes of history were. Uh, they did something like this about a year and a half ago, I think it was in, in Britain. They asked a question, it was uh, debated in the media, who the greatest Englishman was. They had to be quite specific. They obviously couldn't discuss who the greatest Scotsman was because there were so many of them that they, no one would come to an agreement. But finding a great Englishman is a different task altogether. So they went back and forth. They tried this and that and so on. And the conclusion, the conclusion, I suppose, was predictable because there is only one great Englishman, and that is Winston Churchill. And I think that was a good decision in the end. If we had that discussion here, I suppose, and asked the question, who is the greatest American? I wonder, I wonder what the result would be. I know what the result is from an international perspective. I think of all of the, the great Americans, George Washington has to stand out as being the greatest of them all. Certainly, that was the view of an opponent of George Washington, another George, uh, the King of England, who when he heard that George Washington had, uh, after he had occupied the office of president, had stood down from that office, couldn't believe it. He exclaimed that if that news was true, he said, then he is the best of us. He is the best of us. He couldn't believe that someone who had held in his hands the affections of a nation and the power of a nation would voluntarily surrender them to an incumbent. And that, of course, was the beginning of our democracy here. Now, if you were to ask a first-century Jew, who is the greatest hero of Israelite Jewish history? There would be no question about the answer. It would be Moses. I was asking the children this morning during our first service, 
if they knew who Moses was, to tell me something about Moses. And they, they all of them were putting their hands up, remembering things that were very important about Moses. He was the, the baby in the basket among the reeds. They, they all knew that story. Somebody else said, he's the one who killed an Egyptian. Wasn't a good way to be remembered, but he was absolutely right, of course. That was, that was his first strike for freedom when he took matters into his own hands. And for doing that, he was out in the desert for 40 years, uh, out of God's, of God's usefulness for 40 years, awaiting the time that God had appointed for him to do a good work. He was the one who led them across the, the Dead Sea, he was, or the Red Sea, rather. He was the one who, who, was the, who put up with them during those 40 years in, in the wilderness. He had 40 years with the same congregation in the desert without being able to get away from them, and he had a terrible time, and uh, he, he, he did that. That was a great feat uh, of leadership. He was the one who received the Ten Commandments and so on. Moses is a hero. He's a hero not only of the Israelites, but he's a hero even of Christians as well. And Moses is now the great theme of this passage, if we ever get to him this morning, because in the unfolding uh, of this uh, great book of Hebrews, the, the writer is trying to draw our attention to the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He does it right at the very beginning by associating Jesus as the Son with God. And he puts Jesus as superior over everything else. He has him right at the very beginning of chapter 1. He tells us that he is the creator of all things. So there's all things, and there is Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of all things. And right at the very beginning of that chapter, you saw immediately the author make this very, very clear, deliberate, and stated divide between the creator and creaturely reality in which you and I, our universe, angels, archangels, all inhabit. So he is superior to created reality. He is superior, chapter 1, to the angels who are the highest beings in this created reality. The angels, the principalities, the powers of this age, the, the great uh, uh, the archangels, the angels, in all of their array, the hosts of God, as they're sometimes described, uh, who are so much superior to us humans in their abilities and in their being. Jesus Christ is superior to them. They belong with us to creaturely reality. He is supreme and superior to them. And now He's been steadily moving forward. In the beginning of chapter Two, we find that this one who is above all takes on himself flesh and blood. He takes on humanity. And there at the beginning of chapter 2, we find him uh, referred to now not as the, the eternal Son, but as Jesus, his human name, his very familiar human name, Jesus. That's repeated again and again and is repeated here in verse 1 of chapter 3. So the focus is on his humanity. So when this great one becomes human, we ask ourselves, where does he figure among humans? How does he compare and contrast to the greatest hero of Judaism, who shapes Judaism, who gives us our, the first five books of our Bible and theirs? 
and whose ministry is crucial to our understanding of who God is, how God works, and what God's purposes are for the world. So Moses is absolutely a crucial figure. And uh, Moses still to this day, though he had failures, failings, nonetheless, God does not take away from his, his declared view of Moses that he was faithful in the work that he did. For all his failures, for all his shortcomings, and we all have them, he was faithful in the work that God had placed him in. And he remains to this day, as we'll find out later on in Hebrews, he remains one of the most outstanding heroes of the faith. He is a heroic believer, and we can learn from his example. So, that's, that's the transition, really, into uh, this next little phase of the teaching of this book. And as the author comes to it, I want you to notice then that he reminds us that there's a flow of argument here. He's been describing this one who was superior to angels, becoming lower than the angels for a little while. He says that he tasted death for his people. He tells us that he took on flesh and blood, and that he came, that he partook of the same things as we do, and even died as we will die inevitably. Therefore, he says, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Now, the author is doing what? He is identifying with the people who are reading this, including us. He's identifying with us in that he, with us, shares a relationship to Abraham, either genetically because we're descended physically from Abraham, or spiritually because we share the same faith as Abraham. Abraham believed in Jesus too. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said, and he saw it and was glad. He believed the promise God gave to him, which was a promise about Jesus. And all who believe in Jesus believe with Father Abraham and are connected to him by faith. And he calls us brothers. He borrows that word from chapter 2, where he has uh, described the Lord Jesus, uh, who is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Who are these brothers? Well, he tells us in verse 11 of chapter 2 that they've been sanctified, set apart. The word to sanctify means to set things apart, to put them to one side. There are, there are pens in my house that are exclusively for me writing sermons with. And if they're borrowed by any other personage that may be sharing the home with me at any point of time, then, then that's, a, that's a bad thing. Because there's a circle around those things that are mine. They're mine. No, 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 they're mine. Apparently, there's other people who have another person who has a view that everything belongs to her. But that's, that's okay. But these ones are mine, because if they're not there Sunday morning when I'm putting my last little notes in, which are the really inspired notes, into my sermon, then I'm lost, and then you will be, you'll get nothing, okay? So, that's what's at, that's what's at risk. So, he, he calls them those who have been set apart, sanctified, 
by Christ for himself and for God. And here he picks up in this language, the writer picks up in this language, and he applies it directly to them and to us in this room today who are believers. He calls them holy brothers. Or we might want to say holy siblings. We might say, well, here we are in this room, and we're at least half and half, male and female, men and women. And yet the reality is that in Christ, we are holy brothers. Now you say, I don't like that. Half of you are saying, I don't want to be called a brother because I'm not a, not a boy, not a man. I, I don't want to be called a brother. Why is it so important that the Bible calls us holy brothers, men and women together? Well, of course, there's a, there are a number of things that are relate, involved in this. One is that we all belong to the same family. That's, that's the whole point of verse 12 and 13, rather, of chapter 2. Behold, Jesus is speaking, behold me or I and the children God has given me. We are the children of God. We're children of God by gracious adoption. We're not natural children. We're not, we're not even, most of us in this room aren't even descended from Israel. We're not Jewish in descent, so we don't have that connection with God. We have been adopted into the family of God. We did not belong. Once we were lost, once we were no people, but now we are the people of God. Once we were distant from God, once we had no relationship with Him, no identification with Him, some of us can remember a time when we had no time for Him. But that has all been changed. We've come to trust in Christ, and the Bible says that as a result of that, one of the great benefits of that is that we have been adopted into the family. We have become children of God. But it says more than that, doesn't it? It insistently uses the word sons of God. We are all sons of God. You see, the New Testament is quite clearly attacking the kind of patriarchal culture with which it is surrounded, in which a differentiation was made among children between boys and girls, men and women, and had the effect of, of isolating the women, putting them to one side, making them inferior, making them redundant, and the women had absolutely no claim on the estate. If somebody died with, ch with, with children who were only girls, then the estate would go to the nearest male relative who was potentially going to, to take over the inheritance. The Bible is very clear that when you become a Christian, you become a son of God because you become an heir of God. We are all heirs of an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance, as we'll see in a moment. God has adopted us. The Lord Jesus owns us as His own. That is, he, he, he is not afraid to call us brothers, not ashamed to call us His siblings in the family of God. And it's saying something else about us. It's saying that we are related to one another. There is something very strong and wonderful about the relationship between believers because of their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this dynamic of life, the life that Christ has, Christ shares with His people. We share resurrection life. We share the life of the age to come. We share the life of God, the same Spirit of glory and of God that rested upon Jesus, rests in us, dwells in us, binds us to Jesus. Jesus argues that 
when he promises the Holy Spirit that when the Spirit comes, the Father will come and make his home with us. He argues that when the Spirit comes, he, he the Son will come and make his home with us. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, the Father and the Son come along with the Spirit to be with you and in you and beside you and helping you throughout your whole life and throughout the days that God will give to you. He's tying us all together in this bundle of life by calling us holy brothers, set apart by God for God in His family. And you notice what it is we share. He says we are sharers, sharers in a heavenly, in a heavenly calling. That, that idea of to share means to participate in some common blessing or privilege. We, we are together participants in a common salvation. I remember once writing a, a little book on fellowship and looking at the usage of the, the various words of the Bible, including this word fellowship, koinonia, and so on, and to share and, and, and that kind of word grouping. And it's used in a variety of ways. We share in Christ. We share in salvation. We share in the new life. We share in the new birth. We share in fellowship together in the family of God. We share all of this because we belong together. There is something of God by the Spirit that indwells us, and we are His, and we are His forever. And you see how he puts it. What we share in is a heavenly calling or a call from heaven. Now, let me remind you what heaven is. Heaven, we think of heaven when we die, we go to heaven to be with Christ and to be with Christ's people. And there in heaven are the angels and the archangels, and there is the risen, the risen Jesus in heaven. That is the place where He is. It is a space. Heaven is a place within created reality, specially made for creatures to be. It's unlike this space that we are on, this embodied place where we are right now in this, in this realm. It is a place for us to be near God in a way that He is more intensely present from there, so that from our viewpoint, we are encouraged to think about our Father in heaven. And we pray to our Father in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. Heaven is a created reality above us that God has made especially for His own presence to be intensely there for His people. And the Lord Jesus is there in His risen body, embodied existence. He is there with His people, and He is there with the angels of God. And in heaven, God is most fully accessible to humans. And if you fast forward to the end of the Bible, what do you find? In the new heavens and the new earth, heaven comes down, and there is now then no distinction between earth and heaven. Heaven is there. God comes and makes the earth forever His dwelling place in Christ. This word heavenly then begins to distinguish a reality that is different from earthly reality. We might say earthly 
reality and heavenly reality. So, as you go through the book of Hebrews, you'll begin to read about a, a heavenly gift in chapter 6, a heavenly sanctuary in chapter 8, heavenly things in chapter 9, a heavenly country in chapter 11, and a heavenly Jerusalem in chapter 12. In every case, heavenly is contrasted with earthly. Heavenly is superior to earthy, earthly. Heaven is more real than these shadow lands in which we live. Everything is disappearing here. Everything is moving towards shade and, and night here. Our lives, our lives are going towards that flickering out at the very end because there is nothing substantial ultimately here. Everything is falling apart here. The law of thermodynamics determines that the, that, that the universe is deteriorating. The entropy of the universe is rising, which means this tendency to decay all the time is there built into the very fabric of the universe. And it's built into the fabric of our lives. Change and decay and all around I see. That's the reality. And heaven is above that reality. It is a perfect place as opposed to the imperfection of earth. And it is spiritual uh, as opposed to only material as we have here. And so this is in the mind of the, uh, of the writer. He's already talked about the children who are being brought to glory by Christ. Now here he talks about something from heaven. He, here he talks about a heavenly calling. And this word calling means a summons. which is not simply expressed, but enacted. Let me explain what I mean. A summons normally is somebody calling you. Like when you get home, uh, or, uh, and you've got children still at home. I can remember what that was like. And then calling somebody to come and do something. You can call to your heart's content. Suddenly, they get a case of deafness. They don't hear that kind of thing. They can hear everything else, but they can't hear a calling, that kind of summons that you give. So, you've then got to go find them and then drag them by the scruff of the neck down to do whatever it is you want them to do. In that case, your summons is both expressed and enacted. Get the message? You've said, come here, and you've pulled them here. That's, that's a precisely the meaning of this word that's used here. A, a scholar, Luke Johnson, puts it like this, we are pulled elsewhere to something beyond the dimensions of empirical existence. And this is the calling of God. We sometimes call it the effectual call of God. God from heaven not only summons us verbally, as it were, but He summons us vitally by His power. He calls us and He draws us. Jesus repeatedly said, no one can come to Me unless My Father draws them. And uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you remember, He speaks to Nicodemus about the new birth, and He talks about Nicodemus being born from above, God from above, accomplishing this great work of drawing us to Himself, pulling us to Himself, bringing us into His family, summoning us to this heavenly homeland. 
and this heavenly Jerusalem. So that those who have heard that summons and been enabled to respond to that summons and who have come to God in Christ and have believed in God in Christ, it can be said of them, as it says in chapter 12, that they have come to the city of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, the heavenly Jerusalem. The church of God is the company of those whom God has called to Himself out of a fallen world. And that's the only explanation of why it is that many people hear the gospel, but only some respond to the gospel, are drawn by the gospel. And when we pray for the preaching of the Word of God, when we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit in the work we do as we share the words of God in our ordinary conversation, we should be praying that God the Holy Spirit would cause the Word not only to be expressed, but enacted. That the same Word that goes out might draw in to the family of God. Well, these are the people, you and I, people who have been called to this heavenly calling, These are the people to whom the writer speaks. And he calls on them to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, once again, we are drawn to understand and recognize in verse 1 that he is talking here about the incarnate, that is, the embodied Son of God in his humanity. We are to consider the humanity of Christ. No man has ever seen God, but men have seen Jesus. God has taken on humanity in Christ, and He has walked amongst us, and we can know Him in our own human nature. So, what are we to do? We are to consider Him. That is, we are to intentionally and deliberately think about Him, meditate on Him, have right conceptions about Him, contemplate Him, or observe Him. With the eyes of faith, look at Him. He's already told us back in chapter 2, verse 9, look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. We are to consider Jesus. This requires us to be intentional and deliberate. This requires us to do what we're told the Old Testament prophets did when they received messages from heaven and relayed them to the church of their day, and they didn't understand. They knew it was about something that was going to happen, that God was going to send someone in the future, and we're told that they diligently searched to see who it was about whom they were speaking. And we who now have this revelation are to diligently fix our thoughts on Jesus, consider Him, dwell on Him, meditate on Him, reflect on Him, focus our attention on Him, and ponder what it means for Him to be our mediator. And you notice the two words that are used of Him here. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
What does it mean that Jesus is the apostle? Well, that word apostle comes from a Greek word that, is, uh, that means one who is sent by another. When we send an emissary overseas, an envoy overseas, an ambassador overseas, we send them out to do a job of work. We send them on a mission. An apostle is someone who's sent on a mission. Now, we find this language used in the Old Testament, the very same language. I was reflecting this morning on Isaiah 48, this great passage, and it's a very interesting passage because we think we're listening to God speaking, and we are. But as we're listening to God speaking, we find something is changing in the process. Not that God is changing, but we are listening to the Son of God speaking. The passage begins in in chapter 48 with uh, these words in verse 12, "'Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called,' similar connection, "'I am He, I am the first, and I am the last.'" That's the language of the Lord God of Israel. In case we're not clear about that, he goes on to say this, "'My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble you all, and listen. Who among them has declared these things, that is, made these things known? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose, and so on. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Spirit, sorry, now the Lord God and His Spirit, correct translation, has sent me. Who are we listening to? We're listening to the words of God the Son. Everything about Him, the first, the last, creator of all things, the one who's declared to us His purposes, the one who possesses all knowledge and wisdom. He is the one who has been sent by the Father and the Son into the world, principally the Father, but also by the Spirit into the world. Now, why has He been sent? Well, He has been sent because He is the bearer of insight into the nature of of God. He is, the, he is the ultimate and last word about God. Jesus is the last word about God. His, his job as an apostle is to provide us with a perfect revelation of God, perfect revelation. And in order to give us a perfect revelation of God, He has to know as much as God knows. If this were to come simply through any other human being, We could not delight in it as we do in the revelation that's come to us in Christ. We don't trust other human beings enough to believe that somehow whatever they say is enough. We don't trust the prophets that have come after Jesus because that's all they were, so-called prophets. Why does Jesus make the difference? Well, it's because of this whole case that the apostle has been building up here. Who is he? He is the image of the invisible God. 
we're describing when we describe the, the person of the Son in Jesus. We are describing the, the great love and the condescension of God in taking on our humanity in order that in a creaturely existence He might communicate to us creatures. And because He is able to say, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, we learn from that language of His that whatever the Father knows, He knows. Whatever the Father wills, He wills. However the Father works, He works. Whatever the Father promises, He promises. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, He says. And Jesus came into the world precisely and clearly so that we would get to understand something about God that you cannot apprehend simply from looking at what God has made. Only with the coming of Christ do we come to recognize and see that the God who made everything is not only one, but three, and three in one. That's what the Apostle John is saying in chapter 1, verse 18 of his gospel, when he says about the coming of the Son, nobody has ever seen God. Only the only begotten, only the only begotten God has made God the Father fully known. He has exegeted Him. He has revealed Him. He has manifested Him. He has declared His name and His nature and His will and His grace. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Only one who is God by nature can bring to us the depths of the wisdom of God. You, you find this in the Apostle Paul when he's, when he's uh, writing to the Corinthians. He says about Jesus, He is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. That is, in Him is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're found in Him. No creature could bear the weight of the knowledge of God that Jesus brought with Him into the world. You, you look at, uh, at the Proverbs, for example, where wisdom, where wisdom speaks and says this, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Before the mountains had been shaped, I was brought forth. Before He'd made the earth, I was there. The wisdom of God and it's out of the wisdom of God that the Word comes. He is the Word. We're told in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, long ago, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Word, by His Son. He is God's last Word. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the wisdom of God, when we begin to discover all the things that He has revealed to us about the Father, all the things He has revealed to us about eternity, all the things that He has revealed to us about our own nature and our own need, and all that He has done for us, all that He has accomplished for us, not only as our apostle but as our high priest, the one who had come into the world to take on our humanity especially, not only to give us the perfect revelation of God, but also to bring perfect redemption to us and, and pardon to us, 
to make peace between God and, and, and us. He comes as the wisdom of God to do the work of God. And in Christ is all the wisdom of God captured in one person. He is the apostle sent to us with a message for us to believe, the great apostle of our confession. When, when we confess the Lord Jesus, we confess Him personally. He has brought me salvation. He has brought me revelation. He has brought me the knowledge of God. This is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He brings that knowledge to us. How can I trust Jesus? It is because when He comes into the world, He's not coming just as a mere man, but as the Son of God clothed in humanity. He knows the deep things of God. Everything God knows, He knows, for He is God. Everything God can do, He can do because He is God. He comes with all the wealth of that deity, the fullness of deity in bodily form. He comes so therefore you can trust Him. You can trust His Word. You can trust His message. For the one who was sent in His humanity sends out other humans. The, the apostles are the sent ones. They were sent out to do what? They were to testify about Him. They were not to testify about a bare word. They were to testify about an enfleshed word. So that when you go back to the Old Testament Scriptures, what are they teaching? Are they teaching simply moral lessons? Are they teaching commands and, and promises and so on? No, they are teaching about me. These testify about me, Jesus says. When He sends out the apostles, what does He say about them? He says, they will testify about me. When the Spirit comes and works in the hearts of the apostles, what is this business? It is to testify about Jesus. What the writer is saying to us is, brothers and sisters, holy siblings in Christ, consider Jesus. Make it your regular activity to bring your mind to bear, to bring your, 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 your reason to bear upon who He is. Consider Him. Contemplate Him. Think about all that He is to you, all that He can be to you, all the how you can trust Him, how you can, how you can depend upon Him, how you can rely upon Him, how He will never leave you or forsake you, how He will never let you go, how He will never let anyone take you out of His hand, how He will be yours for all eternity. Consider Jesus. Consider Him who has told you the way of life, taught you the way of life. Believe Him, follow Him, trust Him, and you will have life. You will have life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would take Your Word and write it in our hearts, and we pray that You would stir up within us affection for, interest in, love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You that He comes with all the wisdom of God and that what He gives us in Holy Scripture now through His apostles is the perfect revelation of who You are, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not exhaustive because we could not embrace exhaustive knowledge. 
it leaves us absolutely sometimes helpless because it's so great. But nonetheless, it is reliable. We pray that you would lead us to trust in him more and more as the days go by. We ask in his strong name. Amen.